Hello everybody, welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and it's just Tom today. No Don on this one. Um, so, after a little bit of a break, uh, a few months, for good and bad reasons, uh, we're continuing the Program to Kill series here. Uh, today we're going to be diving into the Franklin Scandal and using Nick Bryant's work. Uh, he has a book out called The Franklin Scandal. He has some other published stuff, such as a chapter in a textbook on disassociative identity disorder. We'll be using these. And um, I will explain why I'm pretty much relying exclusively on Nick Bryant's work. Uh, the Franklin scandal is kind of a big topic, as I have come to learn over the past few months. So uh, we're going to be doing this over a few episodes. Um, I want to do a little bit of a trigger warning, just like with the Dutroux Affair episode. This is not uh, pleasant listening exactly, so... You know, buckle up and, um, yeah, enjoy. Yeah, so we will start the story by talking about Lawrence King, also known as Larry King. Um, he was born in September 7th in 1944, one of six children to Lawrence Sr., uh, also known as Poncho, and uh, his mother, Vinetta. Uh, these two were devout Presbyterians. In fact, uh, Larry sung in the choir and uh, was quite a talented singer, um, kind of an operatic sort of a style. And uh, they were a working class family living in North Omaha, which is like the poorer uh, part of Omaha. Poncho, his father, worked at a meatpacking company called Swift and was uh, relatively successful there. He was actually put in charge of the employee credit union. Larry, uh, Jr., went to high school at Omaha Central High School, and uh, while he was in school there, he worked as a waiter at the upscale Blackstone Hotel. Uh, this was his first exposure to the high life, the kind of uh, glitz and glamour that the other half gets to experience. Uh, he eventually graduated high school in 1962, after which he enrolled in Omaha University uh, with intentions of eventually procuring a medical degree. He, he intended to do pre-med at the university, but he left before finishing his studies there. So three years later, in 1965, he joins the Air Force, moving up the ranks, eventually becoming a sergeant. And he meets his future wife there, Alice Ploche, and they actually get married while he's in the Air Force. During his stint in the Air Force, he's stationed in Thailand as an information specialist that handled top-secret military communications. Anyway, he gets an honorable discharge in 1969 and comes back to the United States where he starts attending classes at the American Banking Institute as well as a management training program at the First National Bank in Omaha. At this point, we kind of see some... For example, his resume speaks about this period of time, and it doesn't really match up with the confirmable facts. So his resume claims that he graduated with a BA in business administration from the University of Nebraska in 1972, which does not appear to be the case. Um, and he started working in the computer section of the First National Bank, where he was taking that management training program. And he was one of only two black employees in the entire uh, company, the other being the janitor. So I think he felt that there was no upwards mobility for him 
possibly like on a racist sort of thing. And so he left, according to, in his own words, uh, due to dissatisfaction with advancement. Uh, Luckily, though, later that year, his father is approached about taking over a failing credit union called the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union. Uh, And this is due to his success with the employees credit union at the Swift company that he worked at. He turns the offer down, uh, but he suggests that his son Larry take the job instead. So Larry interviews for the job, and perhaps thanks to his recent courses and such that he's been taking, he uh, is is given an offer for the job, which he accepts. So um, at this point, the Kings move out of North Omaha into a wealthy Ponca Hills suburb, which is just outside of Omaha, and they uh, move into a, a larger home. In uh, 1973, there was a Omaha Sun newspaper article written about Larry King as a kind of like uh, to puff up his image at the time. So this is a strange story, but apparently, and this is in the newspaper, the Kings uh, renewed their acquaintances in the FBI when a heroin trafficker in that neighborhood that they lived in in North Omaha, uh, a heroin trafficker was busted there. And the agents, the FBI agents, suggested that the Kings move out of that area and apparently into a wealthy suburb with a, in purchasing a large home on the salary of uh, one man working at a meatpacking company. The credit union's total assets at the time, uh, the Franklin Credit Union, was around $100,000. And Larry was taking home at this point no more than $17,000 annually. So it's not like he suddenly came into a huge amount of wealth or something, but it seems like the kings were operating as if there was access to wealth now. Uh, So Larry sets up the Consumer Service Organization, the CSO, at the credit union. Uh, The idea behind the CSO is to provide a hand up, not a handout. So the idea was to provide this service to people on welfare, disability, and social security recipients uh, to offer them accounts Uh, where they could collect checks and receive financial counseling. Uh, And this was a huge success, actually. It brought in a lot of money to the credit union, and that enabled them to start receiving grant monies as well. So it kind of like uh, started a positive feedback loop for for the credit union. In addition to this, Larry also began selling certificates of deposit across the country, offering highly competitive rates, uh, about 2-3% above the market rate, which is pretty uh, significant. However, this was, in essence, a pyramid scheme uh, where proceeds from recent CD sales were used to cover the maturing older ones. Um, But it worked. Uh, Some pretty large corporations were getting involved, uh, Mutual of Omaha, Union Pacific, and a Fortune 500 contracting company called Kiwit Corporation, as well as several religious organizations, including the Catholic Orphanage uh, Boys Town and the American Baptist Church. They all, all of these companies purchased uh, CDs from King. At this point, he starts to make friends with some bigwigs, uh, especially in the Republican Party, it seemed. Um, for example, Reagan's uh, HUD secretary, Samuel Pierce, 
he ends up providing the credit union with large grants. Uh, in 1981, he gives them a, about a million dollars. Um, the Omaha World Herald newspaper, the publisher of that newspaper, Harold Anderson, provided the credit union large amounts of money, as well as attended its annual meetings and was a member on its advisory board. He also hosted fundraisers for the credit union, raising nearly $700,000 in 1984. Uh, So King starts to spend all this money, basically. He makes a very strange purchase, and this is, I think, one of the first things he spends the money on. He builds a, a bedroom in the basement of the credit union. And the stated purpose of this was to provide him a place to unwind and to provide housing for a live-in security guard. One interesting fact here discovered by Nick Bryant in an interview with a security guard who uh, worked for the credit union said that his first official duty as Franklin's security guard was to perform oral sex on Larry King in that basement bedroom. Um, But that's not the only thing uh, King was spending money on. He purchased a second home in the Ponca Hills suburb, a mansion overlooking the Missouri River. He traded in his Corvette for a new Mercedes. He starts buying diamond rings. He buys a $65,000 watch. He racks up massive bills for limo rentals, Learjet rentals, five-star restaurants, uh, flowers, huge amounts of flowers. Uh, Larry King loved, well, loves, he's still, he's still around, loves flowers. Um, he starts investing in other business ventures, including restaurants and bars. Uh, one of the businesses he purchases is Omaha's Showcase Lounge, which was known as a popular destination for prostitutes and pimps. You know, at this point, we are a few years into his run at the credit union, and things are going very well. He's really turned things around, and he's become, you know, quite rich. And what one regulation that credit unions have to abide by, according to the National Credit Union Administration, is uh, annual audits. Uh, as federally insured credit unions, they need to undergo annual audits by the NCUA. The credit union uh, in Franklin had managed to avoid this. So according to a former Franklin executive, auditors would stop by from time to time, but they never actually conducted an audit. What would happen was Larry would simply tell the employees there, like, you know, the employees would, would tell Larry, hey, people are here to audit the place. He would tell them, just call Washington. And after a call to Washington, the auditors would leave. And this happened time and time again. In uh, 1984, an employee writes a memo documenting embezzlement uh, on the part of Larry King. And the employee that wrote the memo was fired. This man then goes to meet with the director of Nebraska's Department of Banking and Financing as well as a representative from the NCUA, the Credit Union Administration. And uh, nothing's nothing comes of that. But at this point, King starts to translate his wealth into political influence. So previously he was a Democrat, a diehard supporter of George McGovern, actually. Um, but in, starting in 1981, he begins supporting Republicans. And uh, we can kind of see that some of the 
high-profile friends he starts making are Republicans, and they kind of start around this 1981 period of time. Uh, so founder and chairman of the Nebraska Federal, Frederick Douglass Republican Council throws a reception honoring him in 1983. And uh, so many people presented glowing tributes to King at this function that they were limited to 30 seconds each. He quickly moved from the local Nebraska scene to the national stage. Uh, he becomes the vice chairman for finance on the National Black Republican Council and also participates in its nominating committee and development committee. And he demonstrates a particular interest in children. He serves as advisor on the National Black Republican Council's Youth Committee, as well as serving on Head Start's board of directors. He was the regional president for the Girls Club, and he was on the executive committee of the Campfire Girls, and as well as the secretary-slash-treasurer of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Uh, he becomes a fixture of Republican politics and becomes very well known for his fabulous parties that he hosts at a rented Washington, D.C. townhouse on California Street near Embassy Row. A, uh, just for, as an example, a 1987 guest list includes names such as Clarence Thomas, the United States ambassador to the U.N. at the time, John Kirkpatrick, uh, New York Congressman Jack Kemp, and Nebraska Congressman Hall Dobb. Uh, Dobb also had a stint on Franklin's advisory board. So King begins making contributions to Republican causes and fundraisers, including Jack Abramoff's uh, Citizens for America, as well as fundraisers for Hall Dobb and Samuel Pierce and Kay Orr's campaign to become Nebraska governor in 1986. In fact, he even sang the national anthem at her inaugural ceremony. And his singing, he kind of became known for his singing. Um, his debut as a singer in, in these kind of contexts was singing the national anthem at the uh, National Black Republican Council dinner in 1982, uh, where President Reagan and his wife were in attendance, and they were very impressed. He would later open the 1984 GOP convention in Dallas, with a spectacular rendition of the anthem as well. While he was in Dallas, he throws his biggest party yet. He uh, hosts it at the South Fork Ranch, which is famous as the setting of the TV show Dallas. That was a very popular TV show at the time about a kind of like a very wealthy family uh, in Texas. And so, yeah, he hosted a, a party at, at this family's you know, fictional family's place, uh, 600 people attend and they're served ribs, baked beans, coleslaw, pecan pie by teenage girls, cowgirls dressed in navy satin tights, vests, and cowboy hats. And they handed out yellow roses. Um, at this party, King is photographed with Samuel Pierce and Ronald Reagan's daughter, Maureen. And then, um, you know, Reagan defeats uh, Mondale in the 1984 presidential race, and King has an op-ed published in the Washington Post entitled Why Blacks Should Be Republican, where he touts the substantial gains made by black Republicans under Republican policies. So he's really like the forefront of the black Republican voice in the country, I would say, and um, yeah, has really just made a name for himself um, in the political scene. 
However, you didn't come here to hear a story about the success of, the, of a black Republican. There's a darker side to the story. And so we'll, we'll start by, um, we'll start off describing the story of his first alleged victim, uh, Ulysses Washington. Ulysses was born in June 1969, one of three daughters, the others being Tracy and Tasha. They were born to a heroin addict, who, and they had become wardens of the state in 1977, where they were placed in a home, the home of Jarrett and Barbara Webb, who eventually adopted the three daughters, the three girls. Uh, so Ulysses was eight at the time uh, that, she, that she moved into the Webb's house and was in third grade. The Webbs had adopted two other children and hosted three additional foster children. So in total, we have eight children at the place. Jarrett Webb uh, was 41 years old at the time and a longtime employee of the Omaha Public Power District and also sat on the board of Franklin Credit Union's board of directors. Barbara Webb was 39 and was a cousin of Larry King. They lived in a ranch house surrounded by rolling acreage and shrouded by oak trees, 20 miles north of Omaha in Washington County. The property had been in Barbara's family for three generations. In fact, her grandparents had founded Nebraska's first orphanage for black boys, the Oakview Home for Boys. So this wasn't a happy place. Uh, The three children that they took in the Washingtons, uh, were repeatedly beat during the course of the next eight years that they spent with the Webbs. In fact, the first night there, Euless says that, first night we were scared, Tracy and Tasha were crying, Tasha peed on herself, and Mrs. Webb tied her to a doorknob, then she beat her and left her there all night. Nebraska's Department of Social Services documents indicate the other adopted and foster children were also beaten, uh, they have evidence of um, beatings with an extension cord, a bullwhip, a rubber hose, and then um, a two-foot piece of like a black rubber strap that was... I. It, so the way it's described, it's a two-foot black rubber strap perforated with holes, and it was dubbed the railroad prop. It sounds to me like a piece of a toy train track kind of a thing. Um, The other children flooded the DSS, the Department of Social Services, with reports of abuse. Uh, Here are some examples of that. When they received a grade of C or lower at school, or uh, when they used the telephone without permission, or uh, when friends would call the home, that would incur beatings. Uh, The girls uh, were beaten for not reporting their menstrual periods. Breaking glass, breaking a glass, you know, dropping a glass on the floor or something, uh, chewing gum, making noise when turning off a light switch, or improperly folding clothes were all things that would be punished by beatings. And sometimes there would even be no reason at all. Uh, for example, Barbara uh, reportedly said sometimes that I'm just going to beat everyone today. During the beatings, the children's were uh, the children were required to remove their clothes, so. Uh, and, th- and that would last from five minutes to well over an hour. Uh, they were also denied food for days at a time. Tracy, one time, was denied food for four days and only allowed school lunches. 
uh, they, the children in general, were tasked with mowing and manicuring the acreage of the property, and they were denied food until that task was complete, which generally took about two days. And they were sometimes forced to eat dog food from a bowl. Uh, in addition to this physical abuse, they were also mentally abused. They were taught to believe that living with the webs was their good fortune and that no other families would want them. One of the adopted boys had a deformed leg and was told no other family would care for him because of it. The children were often told no one else would want you. Pictures of their previous family were burned and they were told that their biological parents were no good or that their mother was a slut. They were not permitted to socialize with other children or to participate in school activities. Now, um, the Webbs, uh, despite all this, uh, they received state subsidies for the eight adopted children, and, or the eight adopted and foster children, uh, due to the troubled backgrounds and their need for counseling. This was an unusual arrangement with the DSS, and in fact, there was ever, no counseling ever provided to these children. Uh, Barbara attended Omaha's Seventh-day Adventist Church every Sunday with, with the children, who were all dressed immaculately, and she sang in the choir there. Um, she also took them to visit Uncle Larry King and, and the functions that he hosted at his home or at the Omaha Girls Club where he was president. Ulysse says that these functions gave her the creeps. Uh, they included approximately 15 older men who ogled the 20 or so teenage girls present. And uh, sometimes Larry would give Barbara videotapes out of a locked cabinet, which Ulysse was able to view one time when they forgot to lock it. The uh, content of the videotapes was teenagers having sex, and she also found... Um, other forms of pornography in the Webb's dresser. The Webb's were friends with the school administrator who would drop by periodically to talk to them. And uh, when the children would appear at school with marks and bruises on their bodies, the school administration would not believe the accounts of abuse and would tell the caseworkers that the Webb's home was the best place they've ever lived. In 1983, the Omaha World Herald, uh, the newspaper that we mentioned before, published an article entitled Making the Best of It, A House Full of Kids, about how loving and compassionate the Webbs were to take care of foster children. Barbara Webb was named Foster Care Mother of the Year and presented the award by the governor, Bob Carey. One night, two of the boys managed to escape after a merciless beating at 1 a.m. where one of them supposedly tore a jacket which outraged the webs and uh, initiated the beating. So the two boys flee to a neighbor's house. They recount their abuse over the years and they reveal the welts on their back and from the most recent beating. Uh, so the neighbors call the Washington County Sheriff's Office and the deputy sheriff pays the webs a visit. Barbara says that the marks were from a spanking, but the deputy sheriff did not believe that story and took the children into custody. The webs threatened the children into silence, and they were noticeably frightened the next day when CPS came to the web home and accused the other boys of lying. The children accused the other boys of lying. 
Eventually, one of the boys who escaped drew a picture of the railroad prop he was beaten with, and the other children were able to identify it, only realizing they volunteered too much information after the fact. So the children were in fear due to the threats that the webs made against them. So they were uncooperative, but they were sort of, I guess you could call it tricked or manipulated into revealing that they in fact did identify the the prop that was being used to, you know, that the, the boys claimed were, they were beat with. So uh, the CPS removes the foster children from the home and places them in a new foster home, but the webs are not charged with any abuse and the adopted children remained with them. After this event, the webs changed their punishment regime to beat the children on the bottoms of their feet so that there would be no marks left. Gradually, more of the children began to escape to the neighbors, as the first two had done. Sometimes they were returned by law enforcement, and sometimes they were able to flee successfully. In November 1985, Ulysses is able to escape and find her biological grandmother, Opal, who lived in Omaha. Ulysses phoned the webs then and said she would only return if her sisters were allowed to visit their grandmother, which the webs agreed to, and so they stayed with her for a few days. They told the grandmother about the abuse during this time, and so she placed a call with the Omaha Police Department, who told her that as they were the legally adopted children of the webs and they lived in Washington County, it was out of their jurisdiction. However, when they were attempting to return the children back to the webs, uh, the webs did not show up at the agreed-upon location. So then, upon returning home, they found that the Omaha police were there waiting for them. The webs had called the OPD and reported that Opal had kidnapped the children. The webs, with the OPD, picked up the children at the grandmother's home and when they returned to the web house, were pushed into chairs, berated. Uh, They said, you are dead to us, and they were called whores and bitches. Uh, And then they were forced to clean and scrub the house the entire night and into the morning. Ten-year-old Tasha was so exhausted, she started to fall asleep while cleaning, but the webs threw her on the kitchen counter and shook her awake whenever she appeared to be falling asleep. The next day, the Webb's attorney called DSS and stated that the Webb's wanted to relinquish custody of Ulysses and Tracy. When the care workers arrived, the Webb's would not let them into the home and after a heated exchange, slammed the door on one of the caseworkers' hands. Eventually, they consented to allow DSS to take Ulysses and Tracy. Ulysses and Tracy were then placed in another foster home, but they were denied visitation rights to see their little sister, Tasha, who remained with the webs. The sisters remained extremely concerned for the well-being of Tasha. Euless became more and more distressed during the initial months with the new foster parents, the Sorensons. One night after sleeping in the closet, she spoke with Kathleen Sorensen and revealed that she and a friend had been raped by their adopted father and also spoke of orgies. DSS was notified and Larry King was also mentioned. Uh, Ulysses alleged that she was first molested when she was 9 or 10 after being asked to take a nap with Jarrett Webb, who then, quote, played with all her parts of her body. 
She said that over the following three years, when Barbara wasn't home, she would be whipped if she didn't accompany Jarrett to the bedroom. Euless threatened to tell Barbara, and Jarrett threatened to hurt her if she did so. However, these threats prevented further molestation from the age of 12 to 15 or so, and then when she turned 16, Jarrett began molesting her again, demanding that she strip her clothes off, whereupon he whipped her with the railroad prop and then raped her. Euless testified to these events for the DSS on a polygraph in past, and despite the DSS caseworkers and the uh, Nebraska State Patrol officer who originally interviewed Elise, all believing her story, the county attorney, Patrick Tripp, did not, claiming that Euless seemed too rehearsed and opted not to file charges against the webs. February of 1986, Euless and Tracy had their relinquishment hearing, which the webs did not attend. The presiding judge declared Euless and Tracy uncontrollable so that the webs were voluntarily relinquishing their parental rights. No mention of the abuse in the judgment. Later that month, Tasha and another one of the webs adopted children, Robert, were placed in another foster home near the Sorensons. Uh, they were terrified of ever returning back to the webs and had a habit of hoarding and hiding food. Um, so completely just mentally devastated, these children. Uh, they spoke of being forced to perform oral sex on an uncle who visited them. I uh, recall that Larry was referred to as Uncle Larry. And that Barbara was aware of this, but did nothing. This was immediately reported to the DSS. Um, so that... Next month, March 1986, so the next month then, um, in March 1986, a judge rules that Tasha and Robert were to be returned to the webs as part of a rehabilitation plan. He also orders that both children and the webs undergo psychotherapy and family counseling and allows Tasha supervised visits with her sisters. At the conclusion of this hearing, Barbara Webb charged a pregnant DSS casework of Tasha's poked her in the stomach, and said, I hope your baby dies. The Webb's attorney threatened a lawsuit if their casework wasn't transferred out of Washington County jurisdiction, and after initial refusal, it was eventually transferred to a Douglas County branch of the DSS. The new caseworker in Douglas County was outraged at the allegations of child abuse and found the children very cooperative with a good attitude. A psychologist working on the case wrote that Tasha's contact with her sisters was thwarting her relationship with the Webbs, and suggested the visits be discontinued. She also found that the children's social isolation was due to depression, not abuse by the Webbs. A few months later, in August of 1986, the children were both removed from the Webbs' home, and the Webbs relinquished their parental rights a month later. Both children, again, were deemed uncontrollable. Euless would grow more and more trusting of her new foster mother, Kathleen, and would eventually elaborate on her initial accounts of molestation and orgies. She now spoke about Larry King, Barbara's powerful cousin, flying her and other children by charter plane to Chicago in the fall of 1984 and to New York in the spring of 1985. She said that the children were forced to wear negligees and attend orgies. Uh, Boys Town students were also on the flights, and she recognized a nationally prominent politician, in quotes, 
who procured a child at the orgy and left the party. Sorensen was dumbfounded by Euless's accounts, but everything she had previously mentioned had panned out, and since witnessing the way the authorities had actively suppressed Euless's complaints and testimonies, she felt that the system must be corrupt. She relayed Euless's allegations to a friend of hers that worked at Boys Town uh, by the name of Julie Walters. Walters interviewed Euless and the Sorensons, and both Euless and Tracy identified former students in Boys Town yearbooks as being uh, allegedly involved with King. She wrote a 43-page report, approached the Boys Town director, Father Valentine Peter, and began asking around uh, Boys Town about King. She discovered that the Franklin Credit Union employed a Boys Town teacher and a yellow uh, Trojan sports car leased by King had repeatedly prowled around the campus and three Boys Town teachers had been seen driving it. Boys Town opened an internal investigation, but nothing came of it or uh, Walter's report, and so she eventually left Boys Town. At Euless's initial confessions uh, to Kathleen Sorensen, um, there was a third person there, a close friend of Kathleen's named Kirsten Hallberg. Uh, Hallberg had worked as a resident advisor for Utah Haley, a residential psychiatric facility for adolescent girls in Omaha. So she heard the initial confessions. Later, as, in her capacity as a RA at the at the facility, she was tasked with intake for a 12-year-old girl named Shawnetta Moore. Shawnetta's parents split up when she was two, and at the age of 10 began going out at night, and some nights didn't bother coming home. Her mother found her impossible to control, and Shawnetta became a warden of the state and was placed in Utah Haley. Uh, Utah Haley, uh, I should just note, uh, one of the employees there was a friend of Barbara Webb's, and uh, Alice King, Lawrence's wife, sat on the board of directors. Anyway, during the intake interview with Shanetta, um, she was asked about her hobbies, and she said that she had once frequented the North Omaha Girls Club. Holberg was aware of King's affiliation with the Girls Club, and having heard about Ulysses' uh, confessions, you know, was interested about this. So she asked Shanetta if she knew the Webb girls. Shanetta became distressed and suddenly blurted out that she had been involved in a prostitution and pornography ring. She said she had tried to break away from it, and her mother was raped in reprisal. She then became very frightened and withdrawn. She did not want to speak any further because the ring had too much power, and she said any more, uh, and if she said any more, they would both be in danger. This account of rape is corroborated by the Omaha Police Department reports, which uh, have it that at 3 a.m. on June 15, 1986, a short, thin African American man with a stocking on his face broke into her home, held a butcher knife to her throat, and asked, Where's Shanetta? Reporting the rape to the police that night, they told her to collect herself and make the report the next day. She did so, and the sergeant who took the call noted that the responding officers the previous night hadn't, had not written a police report, had not taken the victim to a hospital, or contacted a crime lab, and 
unbelievably, they also advised her grandfather to have the door repaired. Um, Hallberg reported the allegations that Sean had made to her supervisor and mentioned that she knew of other girls, meaning the Webbs, who had made similar claims and suggested they contact the Nebraska State Patrol. The supervisor became very agitated by this and replied that Hallberg would be breaking confidentiality statutes if she did so single-handedly. Holberg attempted to coax more information out of Shanetta, but she was cagey, as were two other girls who made similar allegations about being involved in a prostitution and pornography ring. Eventually, an employee other than Holberg did call the Douglas County Sheriff's Department, and a pornography investigation into Utah Haley was conducted, ultimately clearing them of any wrongdoing. March 5th, 1987, Hallberg was reprimanded for becoming over-involved with residents and was given a choice to resign. She refused and was fired. Shanetta was then discharged from Utah Haley shortly thereafter and enrolled in an alternative high school. She began to confide in the counselor there who wanted to confer with Hallberg. The three of them agreed to meet on June 27th, but the night before the meeting, Shanetta called Hallberg and sounded suicidal. Holberg picked up a friend, another former Utah Haley employee, and went to Shanetta's house. Shanetta was sitting in front of her house crying. Her mother gave them permission to harbor her for the night. Shanetta then spoke about wanting to end her life and said it would be less painful if she did it than if they did. She said, if, if they find out I talked, they will torture other kids in my name. The next day, she refused to promise not to take her life, so she was hospitalized, which required her mother's consent and appraisal of the allegations. Shockingly, the mother was completely unaware of all of the allegations and the, the situation. Utah Haley neglected to inform the mother, and uh, I guess Shanetta had never told her either. The hospital evaluation determined that Shanetta was suffering from major depression and suicidal ideation, and that her very low self-esteem was causing her to believe that suicide was the solution to her problems. She was determined to be of sound mind, good judgment, and not psychotic or delusional. Shanetta confessed about her involvement in the prostitution and pornography ring during this interview. She was extremely troubled, inconsolably sobbing, placing a blanket over herself and silently rocking back and forth, began to suffer from terrible nightmares, and never confided in the staff beyond her initial intake statement. She said that her past was too painful to think about and that she couldn't possibly forgive herself. Over the next few weeks, she grew to trust the staff at the hospital and open up more about her experiences. She says that in the winter of 1983, at the age of nine, she met a man named Ray while attending the North Omaha Girls Club. Ray was a overweight African-American man, approximately 45 years old, who had befriended four or five other girls at the club. Ray transported the girls blindfolded in his van, originally to a uh, abandoned warehouse to smoke joints. After a few weeks, weeks of this, he would take them to a party after, after smoking with them. All the men at the party were in their mid-30s or so, Initially, they would sit around and talk to the girls about their problems, and then they would start to drink and take drugs together. 
Once the girls were, quote, wasted, they began to have sex with them, and the girls had no choice of who would have sex with them. Shanetta said she attended parties like this for six months before being taken to her first power meeting the next summer. This meeting was held in an abandoned shack where candles and other weird stuff were present. She identified the men at the meetings by pseudonyms Ace, King's Horses, Jerry Lucifer, and Mike, and they were dressed in robes with upside-down crosses. The leader wore a black cape and gold skull-head rings on his fingers. The girls were told the room would start spinning, and she realized they'd been drugged. Around 7 p.m., Shanetta was locked in a small room with a white baby girl and stayed there for the next five hours. At midnight, they opened the door to find Shanetta holding the baby. They took the baby from her and told her that she would achieve great power if she killed someone she really loved. She then gave an extremely detailed and gory account of the men ritualistically murdering the infant. As she witnessed this, she became hysterical, and one of the men had to restrain her and lock her into a small dark room for approximately 24 hours. She heard the men whipping and beating one of the girls during this time. Shortly after they stopped the beatings, they opened the door and informed Shanetta that she had passed the test. Then they drove her home and dropped her off near her house. The next time she saw the men was at another party where the girls were forced to sleep around. She identified Larry King at this party. She mentioned four other children had been ritualistically murdered in a similar fashion. One boy had been killed for threatening to, to uh, notify the, the authorities. One young boy had been killed for threatening to notify the authorities. The staff noted that after these allegations, she started to have dreams about the cult killing the hospital staff, and she wrote a suicide letter and conveyed that she could not forgive herself and felt that she was going to hell. She said she harbored no more secrets, and in October was found in a room in the dark, curled into a fetal position. So that will set the stage for the uh, downfall of Larry King in 1988 when the credit union is raided and uh, everything is kind of exposed and brought to light. Uh, but that's what we want today. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.